This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, March 16th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. How has Ukraine's crowd-funded territorial defense worked out? As Russia continues its assault, much of the new crowdfunding has flowed to the government rather than independent groups. Researcher Garrett Wood has studied unconventional defense arrangements, most especially the arrangement in Ukraine. We spoke earlier this week. You and I spoke for a Cato Daily podcast uh, just about a year ago about defense in Ukraine and uh, the unique way that Ukraine, which, let's be honest, is a fairly corrupt government in a lot of ways. And uh, there's a lot of leakage when it comes to monies that ought to be devoted to national defense, how they uh, essentially crowdfunded defense of particular areas trying to meet particular needs to uh, to provide for their own common defense in an uncommon way. How do you think that that defense has performed in uh, beating back or attempting to beat back uh, Russian aggression there? So in 2014, it performed very well. Uh, and you have sources from the Ukrainian government itself talking about how the majority of the fighting or the lion's share of the fighting was done by volunteer forces funded primarily through crowdfunding efforts. Um, now, obviously, a lot has changed since 2014. And what we have now uh, is a more robust, though still corrupt, Ukrainian government that's um, made a lot of changes in terms of civilian oversight and in terms of um, bringing on uh, territorial defense battalions. So volunteers that had previously served kind of independent of Ukraine's control. Um, and so what you're seeing then is that we've got kind of a distinction, um, not so much in the crowdfunding area. There's there's still crowdfunding going on in Ukraine. And uh, there's a, a huge spike in crypto crowdfunding, but it's predominantly flowing to the government now. Um, so you're still seeing the crowdfunding. What you're not seeing uh, so much of is the independent volunteer battalions. They were prevalent in 2014 and not so prevalent now. So I thought it might be interesting to explore why they fit in 2014 and then maybe talk about how come we're not seeing their reemergence. Yeah. So why aren't we seeing that reemergence? A uh, handful of reasons. So the first is those reforms that the Ukrainian government has undertaken have been successful enough. Um, and it's evidenced just by the fact that, you know, if you look at Ukrainian defensive efforts from their government in 2014, you're seeing a lot of units that were just laying down arms, not fighting, uh, even abandoning weapons caches to uh, the Russian-backed separatist forces. And over the years, they have instituted enough reforms uh, that the Ukrainian government is kind of standing on its own now. Uh, and they're bloodied and having a difficult time, to be sure. They've lost territory, to be sure. Uh, but they're able to provide a lot of the defense that Ukrainian citizens demand. So there isn't that uh, that lack uh, or there isn't that unmet demand uh, that we saw in 2014, or at least not as much of it. Defense is like insurance. Mm -hmm. You don't need it until you absolutely need it. Right. And for Ukraine, uh, one of the complaints about public goods like a national defense or even a regional defense is that it will be under provisioned if left to a private market. That is one of the complaints. Um, it's an interesting complaint because there's a, you know, in any war between two governments, there's still somebody who winds up under providing, at least relative to, you know, what the citizens would have liked to have seen. There's always a, a winner and a loser. Um, the interesting thing here is, yeah, you are seeing, um, let's say failures of the Ukrainian state to defend itself. They've lost territory. And, uh, what that 
what that did in 2014 was lead to, let's say, 30 to 50 uh, independent volunteer battalions. And they each had their own organizational structures and they each had their own constraints and they each kind of uh, took different approaches to providing defense. Some of them focused on um, larger scale conflicts, larger scale engagements, and some of them focused on just defending a hometown. And a few of them focused on kind of ambush or, or guerrilla tactics uh, behind enemy lines. Um, the reason you know that you're seeing less of that now is that a lot more funding has flowed into the Ukrainian military. A lot more reforms uh, have been instituted, such that you're getting better training, real training, and they've rooted out some of the um, some of the corruption in the form of stuff like purchasing uh, certain appointments within the military, you know, for purposes of um, generating kickbacks, essentially. And they've reformed some of the mistreatment of their um, enlisted service people. Um, so now you don't have leaders taking advantage of them quite as much. Um, you also see the Ukrainian government devoting a lot of funding specifically to arming volunteers. So they have this um, National Resistance Act that passes, and it creates this uh, core of about 10,000 professional soldiers, which then are tasked with training and equipping and uh, leading volunteers throughout the rest of Ukraine. And uh, by you know by um, the letter of that law, they're supposed to be able to expand up to about 130,000. Uh, so as an indication then of the direction that Ukraine has moved in terms of improving their provision of defense, they've managed to push out about 88,000 uh, automatic rifles to the volunteers uh, within that territorial defense battalion. So they're actually arming their own resistance much better than they did in 2014. And since they are doing that, it's taken away some of the motivation to create independent uh, volunteer battalions and anybody who would have joined those battalions like they did in 2014 is now maybe a little bit more attracted by the actual provision of, let's say, automatic rifles and whatnot that the Ukrainian government is giving. Whereas, you know, the smaller independent uh, volunteer battalions were often only able to offer pistols or hunting rifles. You know, you're a researcher. You are probably have are conflicted in watching this these events unfold a little bit in the sense that this is providing a lot of information. Um, to the extent that this fight in Ukraine, uh, directed by Russia, is instructive, what do you think are some of the big lessons for countries that uh, might consider, or at least, or even private populations uh, in countries might consider for providing for their own defense? Uh, yeah, big question. So, part of the problem especially now, uh, is that the information that we're receiving is, you know, conflicted very often. Um, there's a lot of fog of war in terms of, you know, who's, who's doing what on which fronts, what the casualty rates are. And it's, it's hard to find reliable figures on that. That's probably something historians will have to give us, you know, decades on down the line. Um, as far as what lessons can be drawn now, uh, with respect to, other countries, probably smaller countries, looking at defending themselves against a larger invader, the lessons of 2014 still apply. So you have populations that don't wish to be ruled by outsiders for whatever reason, and they are capable of providing their own defense um, and and doing it pretty well. Um, so they are they are capable of organizing themselves outside of the traditional uh, incentives that states use to motivate fighters, right? So one of the, the problems that you have when attracting recruits 
is that you don't know whether or not they're going to be good. And states solve this problem by offering, you know, reasonable pay, extended training periods where for months or even years they can observe uh, the quality of the recruit that they've gotten and see whether or not that recruit is actually going to obey orders and, you know, if their incentives are aligned with the states. Um, and then they have courts and police to enforce formal contracts, right? So that's what we—that's what typically happens uh, when a state goes to defend itself, and that's that's absent for a lot of voluntary efforts, and that's what makes economists and and other researchers typically think that they're going to fall apart. So what we have seen, and what we will probably continue to see, is that even absent those mechanisms, it's possible to provide defense, but you have to solve those very real problems. So how do you get recruits who are going to, you know, uh, align their own incentives with yours? How are they going to, how are you going to incentivize them to um, obey orders? And how are you going to do that absent state enforcement mechanisms where you can't punish somebody for simply going back on an informal contract that they signed with you to provide defense? And what other states can be looking at here or what other populations, uh, what other citizens concerned with defense can be looking at here is that there's a number of options for solving that problem. One is that anybody who, you know, fights to defend their homeland is going to be, you know, popular with their neighbors. Uh, and I, I'm even talking about on a national scale here. If you go and you defend your homeland, you have a pretty good shot at political success later on in your life. And this is something that we saw back in 2014, uh, the largest battalions with the most weapons their leaders all had very successful political campaigns that followed uh, their military campaigns. So, you know, if you're if you're wondering how it is a population that's had the state fail them is going to stand up to somebody like Russia, well, one of the ways is people looking for political careers in the future. Uh, another method that's available to them is just using your own reputation or a soldier's reputation, or recruit's reputation within their hometown as a method of getting them to provide defense voluntarily, right? And this is pretty straightforward. You know, if if uh, Russia were to invade my particular neighborhood and I did not go out, you know, armed and try to resist them, my neighbors would think poorly of me. Um, so there are reputational mechanisms that cause people to uh, stand up and provide their own defense as well. And the worst uh, solution that I've, I've found in my research is just looting. Uh, whenever there's a fight, whenever there's uh, battles, there are opportunities to steal from the vanquished and sometimes to steal from your own populations. Um, so to, to kind of bring that all together, what lessons are there going forward? Well, for one, um, this sort of defense is possible and, and effective even in the face of larger opponents. And it should also, um, it should cause a little bit of caution uh, with respect to, let's say, Western allies looking to provide defense on behalf of some smaller nation uh, that's been invaded, in part because they can do it themselves. But if we come in and, and crowd out the efforts, then, you know, maybe those, those uh, independent efforts don't arise. You're talking about NATO. I'm talking about NATO amongst others, yes. Yeah. Um, the, the entanglement that comes, you know, with taking sides in a conflict like that can have repercussions, you know, for decades. Um, you know, look to our involvement in the Pacific ever since World War II, for instance. And whether or not that's worth it, that's up for other people to decide. But in doing that calculus, we have to, we have to consider that taking a side now probably comes with ties and obligations well into the future. Garrett Wood is professor of economics at Virginia Wesleyan University. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>